picture comes to your mind when you hear the name Jesus. When I was growing up, my parents had a picture like this hanging in the living room. It was a room that we only sat in when we had family. It was a, it's a very solemn, sacred, serene picture of Jesus, all meek and mild, right? That was kind of the first image I had of Jesus. The next image I had in my mind of Jesus is uh, the Jesus that was portrayed in a movie called The Jesus Film. It was actually produced in the 1970s by Campus Crusade for Christ. It's been translated into 1,500 languages. It's estimated over 500 million people, after watching the Jesus film, have said they would like to follow Jesus. Now, in this portrayal, he looks a little healthier, a little uh, stockier, I think a little more Hollywood-esque. I mean, he's got good hair. If you're needing good hair, that's a good image of Jesus. You know, I've seen lots of renditions of Jesus. There's the more sacred or traditional uh, picture of Jesus. And then there's also the more trendy picture of Jesus, right? Jesus is your buddy, right? That's good. It's, uh, it's amazing to me how many people have sought to create a picture of Jesus. In fact, uh, my family and I have had the opportunity to travel around the world. One of the things that we love to see around the world is how people have depicted Jesus. And one of the ways for us to like commemorate that is actually to purchase a nativity set from that country or from that culture. We have nativity sets from Rome, uh, from uh, Thailand, from Honduras, from Africa, several countries there, um, also Mexico and Honduras, Haiti. It's amazing to me how all these nativity sets, you can see the ethnicity as well as the environment influence people's picture or portrayal of Jesus, right? Everywhere we go, people want to create Jesus really into their image. The Lakota people refer to Jesus as the buffalo calf of God. Just as one example, right? The Cuban government, they once passed out pictures of Jesus with an automatic rifle around his shoulder. And then during the religious wars in France, the English, they used to shout, the Pope is French, but Jesus Christ is English. I mean, just an example of how we want to make Jesus into who we want him to be, right? Authors, movie producers, historians, theologians, and everyday men and women just like you and me have attempted to come up with a picture of Jesus. Some uh, songs, paintings, there are motion pictures. They've all been created to give us a, a glimpse of this person whose life divides history. We know B.C. and A.D. are reflective of Jesus' birth. Anno Domini, Domino, excuse me. Some people thought that meant after Jesus' death, but it actually means the year of the Lord. And it is constituted history based on this person's birth, this guy named Jesus. You'll find shelves, if not entire sections, in libraries and bookstores dedicated to the topic of Jesus. You'll find him presented as everything from a political revolutionary, a magician who married Mary Magdalene, a good teacher, eschatological prophet, a religious icon, or, or maybe just somebody who's a, a wanderer, uh, kind of a raging nomad who is uh, just deranged. Some of these pictures are based on solid research. Some of them are based on skepticism. Some of them are based on antagonism, and some of them just plain ignorance. 
Well, there certainly wasn't a cell phone that we could have pulled out and taken a selfie with Jesus, right? And posted on social media and everybody liked it. And so we're left to figure out how do we get to know this Jesus? There's a plethora of resources available to us today, even really more than ever. They've attempted to put into images and words just who Jesus is. And if you immerse yourself in one of these or maybe many of these, you might all actually find yourself with more questions than answers afterwards. If you haven't done any serious investigation into the facts about Jesus, you could easily take someone's word for it and end up misled or even disenfranchised. As we were planning for 2022 here at Crossroads, we dedicated this season after Easter to provide an opportunity for all of us to take a serious look into who Jesus is. Those of us who are curious, those who might be skeptical, those who are zealous, those who may have followed Jesus from a very young age, or maybe even also those who have not yet decided to follow Jesus. We want to give every person the opportunity to make an informed decision on is Jesus worthy of our worship? Is Jesus, Jesus worthy of our followership? Is Jesus worthy of being the focal point for us to base how we live our lives and how we treat and love other people from? As we begin this journey today, I want to be very clear about our approach. While there are many sources that give us a, a, a portrait or portrayal of Jesus, we actually have an accurate and authentic historical record, more, more importantly, eyewitness accounts, to provide us a reliable source so that we can be familiar with Jesus. We refer to that source as the Bible. It gives us a full picture of just who Jesus is. And by making an honest study of this reliable source, I think you and I can make an informed decision about who Jesus truly is. There really is no other ancient manuscript that is, comes close to the reliability of the Bible in terms of even early manuscripts. Here's what we know. There are 6,000 original manuscripts that record the Bible, and they date about 50 years after the life of Jesus. That's a wealth of reliability and proof that what they say is true. Here's a, a, a comparison. Many people know the work of Homer. It's the Iliad, right? It's one of the uh, most classical works of literature ever. And there are about 2,000 early manuscripts of Homer's Iliad, and they date 400 years later after it was originally written. Yet nobody in the room would say, yeah, I'm not sure about Homer and Iliad and all that. Sounds like a lot of make-believe type of stuff, right? I think instead of providing a, a airtight proof of his identity or, or serving as some source of propaganda to sway an audience, the Bible provides a record of the events of Jesus' life. And the, the facts of a biography that might be important to us as modern day readers, th that really wasn't the main focus or attention of those who recorded about Jesus' life that we read about in the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Bible translator J.B. Phillips says this, I have read in Greek and Latin scores of myths, but I did not find the slightest favor of myth here, talking about when he translated the New Testament. No man could have set down such artless and vulnerable accounts as these unless some real event lay behind them. Notice event is capitalized. The gospel seems to throw the decision back to the reader. 
We can take Jesus up on his invitation. He says, come to me. And I think that invitation is one to examine me, to test me, and also for us to decide. That's the invitation that we want to respond to in this series. As a guide, as a supplement to the four gospels, we chose to um, in- include a, a, a piece of work named uh, The Jesus I Never Knew. It's written by a guy named Philip Yancey, who's an author, he's actually a journalist, and he does a great job just looking at the facts, presenting the facts about Jesus and letting you and I decide to come to grips with the Jesus that we may have never known, whether we followed Jesus for a long time or maybe we're still yet convinced. And so, I would encourage you to pick up a copy of The Jesus I Never Knew. We have some available. They are for a suggested donation of $10. You can get them out at the, at the connection desk. Also, if you want to download a digital version, you can hit that QR code. It's a little more expensive digitally, uh, but we want you just to have a copy. And what we're going to do on the weekends, we're going to talk about um, the, a concept about Jesus. And then I'm going to encourage you to read more about that in the week to come. And so every week we'll present a, a new concept about Jesus. Jesus, and then give you an opportunity to go a little bit deeper in our studying and understanding of that. Today, we're going to begin at the beginning. We're going to start with the birth of Jesus. I know that feels a little weird because last week was just Easter, uh, but here we are. We want to look at the incarnation of Jesus. And when we refer to the incarnation of Jesus, what we're talking about is that Jesus is both fully God and fully man. We talk about that as meaning God in the flesh. Yancey states very clearly, Jesus was a human being. He was a Jew who lived lived in Galilee. He had a name and a family. He was a person just like you and I are in every other way, except there was something different than anyone else who had ever lived on earth before. The birth narrative of Jesus gives us plenty indication of that he is fully God and fully man. Matthew begins his record of the birth of Jesus with a genealogy. You don't have to go to genealogy.com to figure out Jesus. There's one already provided in scripture. And it's interesting that genealogies in the ancient world were not concerned about chronology as much as a heritage or ancestry. Genealogies traced lineage, but they did not necessarily include every generation. Jesus' Jewish lineage and ethnicity is very important to point out. As a Jewish person, Jesus' features were reflected his, uh, his ethnicity. He was olive skin. He had dark eyes, dark hair. And um, if you see any rendition of Jesus that's fair skin, that looks a little more Caucasian with blonde hair and blue eyes, you can know that that's not accurate a bit. Historians speculate that Jesus stood about five foot one to five foot 11. He's more of a point guard than a center, if you know what I mean, right? Matthew's genealogy has a strong focus on the spiritual lineage of Jesus, that he was the son of Joseph, though in Matthew's genealogy, he makes it very clear that Jesus was born of Mary. And then he goes on to say that he traces his lineage back to David, back to Abraham, and all the way back to God himself. There are many other unique features in the genealogy of Matthew. If you want to use the Bible app and listen to it, you won't have to worry about pronouncing all the hard words, all the hard names, right? But it's really interesting. If you were to do a study on all the people that Matthew lists, there's a a wealth of information to point to Jesus as being fully God, but also fully man. 
Matthew goes on in his record of Jesus' life to highlight many of the moments of the birth of Jesus as indicators that he was fully God and fully man. Again, I know it's the week after Easter, but I think it'd be important for us to listen to the Christmas story one more time. Listen, maybe with fresh ears this time, pick up on indicators that Jesus is fully God and fully man. Matthew's account in Matthew chapter one, beginning in verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son. You're to give him the name Jesus because he will save people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, He did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. He did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. This does not mean that God and Mary had sexual relations, but that the origin of Jesus in Mary's womb was miraculous. It was a fulfillment of prophecy. In fact, the place where Jesus was born, Bethlehem, The person he was born to, Mary, a virgin, his name, Jesus, and the timing were all part of the prophecies that were prophesied hundreds of years ago before Jesus took his very first breath. In fact, there are over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament about Jesus, and he fulfilled every one. Somebody has talked about the probability of that happening would be like taking the state of Texas and covering the state of Texas with quarters two feet high, and then taking one quarter, marking an X on it, and dropping it in the pile. Then taking a volunteer, blindfolding the volunteer, and asking them to find that quarter that has an X on it. That's the type of probability that it would have, that that compares to Jesus fulfilling all of these 300 prophecies. And you ask, how can that be happening? I'd say because he is fully God and he's also fully man. Angelic intervention was part of the announcement of Jesus' birth, both before it happened as well as after it. Luke takes a more historical look at the birth of Jesus by including political rulers and historical events so that we would know it actually happened. Again, let's listen to the birth story of Jesus with fresh ears maybe this morning. Luke chapter two, Luke records. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree and that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. Those are historical things to tell us that this isn't make-believe. This actually happened. Everyone went to their hometown to register. So Joseph went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him, and they were expecting a child. While they were there, 
The time came for the baby to be born. She gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. When you read both of these accounts of Jesus' birth, you see something special is happening. First of all, there's this virgin birth. I mean, that's a big obstacle to so many in trying to decide if Jesus is legit or not. There's never been a virgin birth before Jesus, and I don't know of one after. But I stand firmly believing that Jesus was born of a virgin. That's how it was recorded. That's, there's proof that these records are true. And we can take that at face value. But when Mary heard that news first, she was just as troubled. I mean, can you imagine if you're a woman saying, you're going to have a baby and it's going to be from the Holy Spirit? That's a head scratcher, right? Mary was troubled at these words, not because of like why it would happen as much as probably how it would happen. But both seemed to perplex Mary, but I love her response. She responded to the angel's announcement of that. May it happen to me as you have stated. Yancey writes about this. He says, nine months of awkward explanations, the lingering scent of scandal. It seemed that God arranged the most humiliating circumstances possible for his interests, as if to avoid any charge of favoritism. He says, I'm impressed that when the son of God became a human being, he played by the rules, harsh rules. Because small towns do not treat kindly young boys who grow up with questionable paternity. He goes on to write this. Often the work of God comes with two edges. Great joy as well as great pain. And in the matter of fact response, Mary embraced them both. She was the first person to accept Jesus on his own terms, regardless of any personal cost. Isn't that how life plays out for you? I mean, there's these moments of really high, high highs. And then there's these moments of really low, low lows. And in the middle, God is present in them both. And I look at the highs and lows of life, and I want to respond like Mary, with faith and with trust. There's also this divine revelation that is wrapped around and engaged and involved in Jesus' birth. Luke includes the announcement of Jesus' birth to some shepherds, as well as the revelation that Jesus is the Messiah to this man named Simeon eight, month, eight, week, eight days excuse me, after his birth. In both of these moments, we see indicators and reactions that Jesus is fully God and fully human. The angels told the shepherds, today in the city of David, a savior has been born to you, and he is the Messiah. He is the Lord. Notice all the capital letters that indicate these are titles of deity, Messiah, Savior, Lord. A man named Simeon had been told by the Holy Spirit that he would not die until his eyes saw the Messiah. And when he saw baby Jesus eight days after his birth, he exclaimed, Sovereign Lord, as you've promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you've prepared in the sight of all nations, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. Yancey writes, somehow Simeon sensed that Though on the surface, little had changed. I mean, there was still an autocrat named Herod who ruled. Roman troops were still occupying Jerusalem. Jerusalem overflowed with beggars. But underneath, everything had changed. A new force had arrived, and it undermined the world's powers. 
The account of the life of Jesus recorded by another person named John, is, he's an eyewitness to the life, the death, and resurrection of Jesus. He doesn't include the same birth narrative like Matthew and Luke, but nevertheless, John makes it very clear that Jesus is both fully God and fully man. Look at the first part of John chapter one, where he talks about Jesus' deity. He says, in the beginning was the word. That word is logos, Greek word. It's referring though to Jesus himself. The word Jesus was with God and the word Jesus was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world, Jesus' deity. Now look at Jesus' humanity. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, humanity, but his own did not receive him. Yet, to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children not born of natural descent, nor a human's decision or a husband's will, but born of God. We have seen this glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. The reality that Jesus is both fully God and fully man does not mean that Jesus had two identities, two realities, or a split personality. He was one person that was fully both God and man, God in the flesh. To be fully human mean that Jesus ate, he drank, he got tired, he went to the restroom, he wept, he felt pain, he was frustrated, he listened with compassion, he was comforted, he was loved, he had the full human experience. There are people who don't believe that. But we can see through history and through scripture that Jesus had the full human experience. To be fully God mean that he defied natural laws, that he healed. He spoke to and with God directly. He knew the heart of people without even having met them before. He knew people's history. He was completely holy. All those things are wrapped up in that full deity, that fully God piece. Hebrews 1 verse 3 says these words, the Son, meaning Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory. The exact, rap, exact, rap, oh my goodness, exact representation of his being. That's what I was trying to say. The incarnation, you need to know, is a little more mysterious than even comprehensible. But don't dismiss its value because of that. You and I take a lot of things for granted that we cannot explain. Take the digestive system. I mean, I don't know how it all works. I could probably learn, but there's a little bit of knowledge and there's a little bit of mystery how when we eat things, our body processes them and then sheds them in some very creative ways. That's the digestive system, right? Think about flying in an airplane. I don't know how that much steel and metal and that much flesh can take off so fast that it starts to lift off the ground and can go thousands of miles in the air. I'm amazed every time I'm sitting on my back porch like last night, what a beautiful night, and you can just see those red blinking lights going back and forth all across the sky. What keeps an airplane in the sky, I don't know, but I believe that it can or I would never get in and put my seatbelt on as instructed, right? I can't explain to you exactly how all this fully God and fully man came about, but I'm pretty clear on the why. 
God wanted to have a relationship with you so much. He wanted to reveal himself to us so much that he came to be with us. He came to our world. I love what Yancey does in his book, and I want you to read this this next week. I'm just going to give you a couple of highlights of a very unique perspective that he takes on how Jesus becoming human flesh reveals some things about God. And these are things that probably aren't as typical as you may have heard before. These are in addition to all the characteristics that we know about God. One of the first things that that Yancey points out is that God is humble. Humble is not typically a word associated with rulers or deity. And so he says this, the God who roared, the God who ordered armies and empires about like pawns on a chessboard, this God emerged in Palestine as a baby who could not speak or eat solid food or even control his bladder, who depended on a teenager for shelter, food, and love. God humbled himself by coming to our planet as a baby born to peasants so that the lowly of this world would know that he came for them. The shepherds were some lowly peasants out on the fields of Judea that day. They were known as sinners, outcasts. And yet the birth of Jesus was announced to them first. Fittingly, it was to them who God selected to help celebrate the birth of Jesus so that he would be known as a friend of sinners. Isn't that good news for you and for me? I mean, no matter what we've done, God still wants a relationship with us and he's made that possible by wrapping himself in flesh and coming and doing something about our sin. God's humble. God is also approachable. While reverence is appropriate for God, fear is never a good motivator. In Jesus, God found a way of relating to human beings that did not involve fear. He became one of us. I love learning how things work. In fact, I love it so much that I've invited myself to some people's workplaces, some who belong to this congregation and some who I have known in other congregations. I've got to see how a factory takes tomato paste and makes all kinds of products that get sold all over our country. I've got to see how water bottles are taken from just resin that comes through tubes, formed into a bottle, filled, capped, and labeled in like less than seven seconds. It's pretty amazing. While I've been here in Evansville, I've been able to see small pellets of plastic formed into all kinds of parts for appliances and also the automobile industry. I've been able to see how a small racing parts, car parts factory or or business has turned into a provider for all kinds of automotive supplies all across this world. It's pretty amazing to watch how all that works. Even more special to me is to walk the plant or the factory with people who sit right here in these pews with us. They're people who either own the company or have a pretty high influence in the whole shebang. And as I watch them walk the floor down with the, the, the frontline workers, what's amazing to me is the relationship that exists there. And I can tell you that these men that I've been able to walk that plant floor with, they don't sit up in their ivory tower of the office where they could. But they get out and they know the names, the stories, the families, the concerns of the people who they are called to not just leave, but to serve. It gives me a great privilege and great honor and pride to know that the type of people who who make up Crossroads are living missionally. 
They're living out their faith, not just for a short window on Sunday, but every day of the week and in what they do in the wall, outside of the walls of this place. And it, it hearkens me back to this characteristic of God, that he didn't just stay up in heaven and bark a bunch of orders down to the, the people on earth, but he showed up in our world so that he could reveal himself to us, but also so he could have a relationship with us. Yancey next points out that God is the underdog. And he says it feels a little sacrilegious, even blasphemous, to refer to the God of the universe as the underdog, right? I want to make sure that you know that I truly believe that God is sovereign. He has no equal or rival. We can see his power even today in our world through the storms or even also in healings. But in the incarnation, we see God restrain himself for a higher purpose. If... Uh, if you're like me, maybe recently your sports watching on TV has hit an all-time low. I found myself watching golf, baseball. I even watched motocross yesterday. And all that's because the thing I love to watch on TV as sports ended uh, just a few weeks ago. It probably has got reckoning my world because in the month of March, I probably watch way too much sports on TV, specifically college basketball. And even though my favorite team made a real early exit of the tournament this year, I still watch the whole thing. I enjoy college basketball. While I was watching, I was, you know, usually during the commercials, I kind of zone out, maybe like you. And for once, like there was a commercial that caught my attention. When it first started, I thought it was just another car commercial or insurance or some medical device. But the story it began presenting to me grabbed my heart in ways that I found myself leaning in. It was actually a commercial about the ramifications of teenage pregnancy. It was talking about how the hardships a mother might face if she finds herself in this situation. And I was kind of just drawn in and all of a sudden, bang, with a two by four, this line came up on the screen that said, Jesus' mother was a teenage mom. Then it followed up with a web address, hegetsus.org. And when I looked at that commercial, I'm like, what was that? And I had to go to hegetsus.org and figure out, I think it's .com, figure out like, what is this about? What I now know is that it's a $100 million investment from some private investors who know and love Jesus, who want the entire world to know about Jesus' humanity and his deity. And so they've produced a series of commercials they have some other strategies as well, but these commercials just present facts about Jesus in some very real life, raw ways. In fact, I wanted to show you that video today that I saw during March Madness. It's actually, I've seen it several times, even during prime time since. But I'll just be honest, uh, the video itself is rather raw. It doesn't show uh, you know, any uh, perverted things, but it just presents the reality of where Mary found herself bringing Jesus into this world in some ways that are pretty earthy. It did feel appropriate to show in a setting like this. And so, it's, again, it's not pornographic or anything like that, but we just felt like caution to do that. And so if you want to watch it, you can go to hegetsus.com and there's plenty of other videos. We're going to show some of the other ones throughout this series. We couldn't have orchestrated this in any way so that there's this national campaign about presenting who Jesus is. At the same time, we're trying to do the same thing as a church family. I hope the combination of both will rattle us all, especially maybe those 
who are here today and think, ah, another series on Jesus, kind of got that, you know, I could preach it myself. You're, you know, see me afterwards. We can maybe arrange that. Also, for you out there who said, ah, Jesus, like, not interested, thank you. I have those two extremes would, would be rattled by the truth of who Jesus is, maybe fresh like never before, so that all of us would consider, like, is Jesus worthy of my worship, my followership, and for basing everything about my life on? You know, the commercial about the, this teenage mom presents Jesus in such a way that he, it, it, it just really emphasizes that Jesus' entry into the world was done in such a way, such a lowly way that he, he identifies with the underdog. In fact, Yancey writes this. He says, growing up, Jesus' sensibilities were affected most deeply by the poor, the powerless, the oppressed. In short, the underdogs. Since God arranged the circumstances in which to be born on planet Earth without power or wealth, without rights, without justice, his preferential options speak for themselves. Meaning what's important to Jesus are those people who find themselves as the underdog. Maybe more of us can relate to that reality than feeling like we're at the top of the heap, right? I love what Paul, the Apostle Paul says in Galatians 4. He says, when the time was right, God sent Jesus, born of a woman, subject to the law. God sent him to buy freedom for us who were slaves to the law so that he could adopt us as his very own children. I think it's really interesting that Jesus can relate with this situation that happens from an unwed mother or for a dad who's not really his biological dad, but he's certainly engaged in raising Jesus. That's a reality that Jesus is familiar with. Paul goes on, because we are his children, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, prompting us to call out, Abba, Father. Now you are no longer a slave, but God's own child. And because you're his child, God's made you an heir. If that doesn't bring a lot of interest into this idea of God being fully God and fully human, I'm not sure what might. The last thing uh, Yancey says that I want to point out today is that God is courageous. I mean, it might be difficult for us to get our little pea brains around the how and why of God being fully God and fully human, why he came to this world. But it tells us something about God that he did. Yancey says this, it took courage, I believe, for God to lay aside power and glory and to take his place among human beings who would greet him with a mixture of haughtiness and skepticism. It took courage to risk descent to a planet known for its clumsy violence, among a race known for rejecting its prophets. What more, more full-heartedly thing could he have done? Yet one night in the cold, in the dark, among the wrinkled hills of Bethlehem, God who knows no before or after entered time and space. God who knows no boundaries took on the shocking confines of a baby's skin, the ominous restraint of mortality. When I look at those characteristics of Jesus revealing who God is, I guess I'm, I look at that and, and have to decide, do those repel me from God or do they draw me closer to him? I wonder if you are willing today to consider that you might have some misconceptions about who Jesus is that might be causing you to be repelled by him or maybe not draw you any closer to him. I wonder if you're willing to take a serious look into 
the truth about Jesus and to make an informed decision about him. Is he worthy of your worship? Is he worthy of your followership? Is he worthy enough to be the focal point of how you base your life on or to learn how to love others on? If so, I want to encourage you to take just a few moments today, do some personal inventory before you go to bed tonight and maybe try to identify what are those things that might be unclear about Jesus in your mind? And consider like something about his deity or maybe one thing about his humanity that you would commit to exploring and, and learning as we go through this journey together in hopes that you will find Jesus worthy of all of those things. I hope our journey helps you in doing that. Whether you're on the far end of the spectrum I've described this morning, wherever you find yourself today, I, plea, I pray that you'll be introduced to a Jesus that you maybe have never known. And you'll know him in a way maybe like never before. Let's pray together. Would you join me? God, thank you for being God. Thank you for revealing yourself to us in the form of Jesus. Everything that you are, you placed in him so that we would know you in a deep way. God, I don't know all of how that works, but I trust it. I trust it because there are many people who have, have firsthand experiences of, of experiencing you in their life, including myself. I have found you to be holy and compassionate and wise, much more than I would ever be. God, I have found you to be faithful, and I have found you to be um, patient, and I have found you to take up my cause when I felt like I was alone or overwhelmed or, or even defeated. Lord, Despite all those things, you are still God and you are the true one living God. And we find in Jesus a beautiful representation of who you are. And so God, I pray that all of us would learn more about him in the coming weeks. God, we would be committed to investigating the facts. We would make a decision for ourselves of, of how you are worthy of our worship, our followership, and, and, and being the focal point of our entire lives. God, I need a Savior. Because I, I realize that I haven't been all that you uh, have called me to be. God, I, I'm not perfect, Lord. I don't have it all figured out. I, I need a God who is compassionate and gracious and one who offers salvation. God, I might not be alone here today. And so I pray that all of us, we experience more of Jesus in our life. And that would really change who we are from the inside out. And the world that looks and notices and watches, Lord, I pray they would see a clearer picture of who you are as we live and love like your son Jesus. And I pray that through his powerful name, amen.